Hi, everyone. Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well, and thank you for sitting in on another edition of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast where we give you the best thoughts and opinions that we have come out with week to week. And this week, I'm going to be reviewing the brand new Ariana Grande album, Thank You Next, which miraculously is now my favorite Ariana Grande record. I'm also going to be talking about the exploits going on on the latest Panda Bear album, Buoys. If you're a psychedelic folk or an Animal Collective fan, you are not going to want to miss this one. Also talking about the new LCD Sound System Electric Lady Sessions album, where the band goes over with some pretty raw performances of tracks from their back catalog, especially their last full-length album, a handful of interesting covers as well. And I'm going to be covering the new experimental, phenomenal, artistic undertaking that is the new Shoe Shoe album, Girl with Basket of Fruit. Also, we have a Bruno Mars and Cardi B track review for you, and I'm also going to be nitpicking over the premise of the brand new Yesterday film, which if if you've not heard of it, Uh, It's a new movie where uh, essentially a protagonist uh, sort of finds himself in a world where the Beatles never existed. I've I've got my problems with the concept of it, and and we'll go into that. So that is going to be our episode here of the Needle Drop Podcast. Here we go. Get ready. Uh, Ba-bam. And it is time for a review of the new Ariana Grande album, Thank You, Next. This is the latest full-length LP from one of Pop's biggest voices right now, Ariana Grande. A pretty quick follow-up to her fourth full-length album that dropped this past summer, Sweetener, which had its highs and its lows, but in my opinion, up until that point, it had been her best album yet, especially with its quirky and forward-thinking production from the likes of Pharrell as well as Super, strong standout singles like God is a Woman. Thank You Next, though, boasts no production from Mr. Williams, which is kind of sad, but Pharrell's beats did lead to a little bit of stylistic inconsistency on Ariana's last full-length LP. That's fortunately not the case here. Pretty much all the instrumentals on Thank You Next are a seamless blend of low-key electropop, blissful ambience, and smooth, spacious trap. Overall, it's a much more uniform record, even though Ariana is working still with an ocean of producers and co-songwriters, the most prominent of which are Swedish pop wizard Max Martin, Andrew Wansell, as well as Victoria Monet, who's written for everyone from Nas to Fifth Harmony. And all this contributes to Thank You Next being a pretty moody record. Even this album's most blatant bops are delivered in a kind of relaxed fashion, or are veiling a hidden sadness or something. So Ariane is definitely approaching this new record with a different sound, a different attitude, and even though this record might represent a pretty quick turnaround and transition, that's partially because it's almost like it's been a lifetime since Ariana's last record, at least in terms of life-changing events, as she broke off her engagement with Pete Davidson, Mac Miller, who she was with in one of her longest and closest relationships, passed away, and unfortunately a lot of listeners, especially American ones, are quick to forget the Manchester bombing, the negative effects of which still loom over Ariana today. Maybe that partially has to do with Ariana putting on such a brave face after it, which Sweetener seemed to be to some degree, but on Thank You Next, it's like all of these negative experiences are finally compiling to a point where she can't pretend it's not getting to her anymore. And now all of this stress is manifesting itself in some really negative behaviors for Ariana that she's trying to address here. Because Thank You Next isn't so much about addressing or changing root problems, but uh, really kind of head-on facing 
what you're doing as a result of these problems. Whether it be coming off really, really needy or needing to cut off some friend with benefits because you don't want them in your bloodline anymore. Maybe you realize this relationship or connection isn't that good for you. Ariana goes on about needing to put on fake smiles and pretending she's okay, being addicted to shopping, trying to forget her past and also getting caught up in some really weird love triangles like on Ghostin where she finds herself having feelings for someone else and also the closing track, Break up with your girlfriend, I'm bored. It's a good title. Due to all the introspective and personal themes throughout this album, this is easily Ariana Grande's most vulnerable record yet. And honestly, it's kind of depressing for a pop record. But for such a dark release, it does kick off with a very heavenly opener, the song Imagine. It's this really smooth, idyllic R&B jam in 3-4, essentially about being in this really blissful honeymoon stage with a guy. It's not the most distinct track on here, but it does have some sweet and nimble vocal lines, and essentially comes off like a really vivid fantasy that Ariana is longing for. The track also hits this really grand instrumental finish with some strings and some pianos and Ariana reaches up into her vocal register and pulls off like these these super insane octaves that sound like a whistle or maybe even like a throwback to the kind of vocal acrobatics Mariah Carey used to do back in the day, like reaching up into frequencies only dolphins could hear. The record immediately goes into way more somber territory with the song Needy, whose instrumental sounds like it's being played out by the lonely keys of a toy piano from the ghost dimension. The song never really picks up the pace or gains a strong beat, and it doesn't need it. Ariana sings with a lot of passion and conviction on this track, and the tune is strong enough that it still shines through and is incredibly catchy in this super minimalist state. The song NASA has a pretty cute hook, but it's one of several tracks on here that strikes me as maybe a little generic or one-dimensional. For me, it sort of fits into a growing ocean of tracks that feature female singers gently crooning over dusty beats with serene synths and generous sub-bass. I kind of feel the same way about the song In My Head as well. Even if I do like the narrative of Ariana Grande tricking herself into a relationship where she imagines the guy she's with as being greater than he actually is or someone that he's not. And meanwhile, the song Makeup is an idea for a track that I like a lot, likening her enjoyment of making up in a relationship to literal makeup that she likes to wear. The quirky instrumental is great. I love the chirpy vocal harmonies that kind of remind me of something off of a old Dirty Projectors record, but the abrupt finish and the barely there structure of the song leads me to believe that they didn't really know what to do with it, which is mega unfortunate because it's one of the most fun and unique tracks on the entire record. Still though, the rest of the album is pretty solid. I love the electro and reggae fusion of the track Bloodline. The track hits hard, it's produced incredibly well, and Ariana's vocals come off really authoritative. It's easily one of the boldest songs on the entire record. From the beat to the horns, it's a very heavy and sexy track. And while I do like the couple of tracks on this record that hit hard, it's really the more dreary spots on this thing that win me over. The song Fake Smile, in my opinion, is fantastic, not only for its smart revision of the Wu-Tang song Tears, and I know this isn't a cover, but the song borrows from the same sample of the song After Laughter Comes Tears. And the way that sample is chopped up and placed throughout this track over here, it, it, it leads me to believe that that original Wu-Tang cut was, was a huge inspiration. The vibe of Ariana's song is absolutely chilling, especially as she breaks out these really breathy and frosty vocal lines on the hook. And the lyrics of this track, frankly, are kind of cutting. Like, it really gets to some painfully sad emotions about Ariana just not being able to 
uh, fake feeling okay at this point. It's a sad reminder of how many people day in and day out are forced into a position where you have to essentially just not break down, not fall apart, despite everything around you pushing you to do exactly that. The song Ghostin' is yet another powerful but also beatless ballad, where Ariana almost sounds like she's singing from a dream state or like purgatory or something, as her voice is just wrapped in all of these pillowy but warped layers of synths. It's very atmospheric, it's very new agey, almost ambient. The song also reaches this wonderful climax of pure bliss in the second leg, despite the lyrics telling a kind of different emotional story. As far as the ending of the album goes, it finishes pretty strong. The song Seven Rings, while it did underwhelm me at first, it has grown on me in the context of the record a little bit. I think the beat is immaculate and pristine. I love Ariana's interpolation of my favorite things into the melody of the opener. I like the biggie nod on the track. And the song's message of buying and retail essentially as like an emotional crutch is much clearer in the context of this entire record, which is all about crutches and all about just not being able to deal emotionally. And even though Ariana does pull from some pretty obvious places for inspiration on this track, ultimately I think it's catchy, I think it's a solid song, and the statement she's making with it clearly comes from a pretty personal place. The song Thank You Next serves as a pretty decent tie-up for the record. It's like a triumphant look back on a bunch of relationships relationships that impacted Ariana emotionally, romantic connections that didn't work out but she still learned from and grew from. Admittedly, I didn't really think all that much of the track at first as it seemed kind of bare bones, maybe a little rushed. I admit I wasn't super crazy about the track when I first heard it, but toward the finish of this record, I think it brings a great sense of closure. It's got a kind of celebratory tone that is very much needed at the end of all of these very dark and very moody cuts, and it sees Ariana reaching like a point of acceptance when it comes comes to all of this stress and anguish and sadness that has come as a result of everything that's been happening to her recently. But then she sort of throws herself back into that drama with the closing track, Break Up With Your Girlfriend, I'm Bored. It's like she's gone over very methodically every issue that she's having on this album, but then at the very end goes on to realize that, you know, I'm, I'm still going to be that girl who makes a bad decision that I'm going to regret later. Which, I mean, I, I guess that's just humanity. So... With this album, I'm happy to report that Sweetener is no longer my favorite Ariana Grande record, and now Thank You Next is my favorite Ariana Grande record. It's got a really solid set of tunes, no gigantic duds like there were a few of on Sweetener. The instrumental palette is super consistent and tasteful and textured and colorful and creative, as well as trendy but without sounding too stale or run-of-the-mill. The emotional themes throughout the record, while not linear, they do paint a picture and tell a story, and a very personal one at that. More personal than I thought Ariana Grande would get on an album, honestly. I mean, sure, maybe the record overall is a little bit dreary, and maybe there are a few spots that could have been a bit more ambitious or epic, but honestly, I think this is a really well-produced and well-put-together pop record that flows fantastically and is easily Ariana Grande's most impressive release yet. I'm feeling a light to decent eight on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Panda Bear album, Buoys. This is the newest full-length album from singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, producer, Mr. Panda Bear. Known for his time in the groundbreaking neo-psych outfit, Animal Collective. Panda Bear has also built up a pretty impressive solo discography for himself over the years. However, I've never considered myself a hardcore Animal Collective fanboy, and maybe because of this I've never 
really been as into the solo material as many other people have been outside of Panda Bear's Person Pitch and of course Deacon's Sleep Cycle. That is a sweet record. And I didn't exactly go into buoys with super high hopes, especially since the lead single off of the record, Dolphin, in my opinion, is such a train wreck with its obnoxious water sound effects, the stale percussive sequences that endlessly repeat like water torture, as well as some very goofy vocals. It's like the track is set to a tempo that forces Panda Bear to sing in slow motion. But surprisingly enough, beyond the singles, deeper into the record, this album actually has a lot of weird endearing qualities to it that I like. Overall, Bowie's is not nearly as soullessly repetitive or as mind-numbing as Panda Bear's past couple of releases. Much of the material on this record feels like it's being presented in a pretty raw form. It's not nearly as dolled up and washed out and labored over. It's also a pretty organic listen to it feels almost as if everything I'm hearing is occurring live right there in the moment. And even with the very limited sound palette Panda Bear is working with on this one, he does still create a very strong sense of place on these tracks. I feel like I'm existing in whatever weird psychedelic space or plane Panda Bear is also in as I'm listening to him perform these cuts. Whether it be on the song Cranked, which features these cavernous delays just swallowing these lo-fi searing laser synthesizers. These sounds are just continually crashing into each other and the intensity of that only increases as the song progresses. The song Crescendo does a much better job of working with a lot of the same water sounds the opening track Dolphin did. The track's glitchy sounds and heavy sub bass gives me the feeling of, of being submerged. This track is also set against a much better song than Dolphin 2, though it's that's not saying much. Even if I'm not super in love with this record, what I do like about it more than some of Panda Bear's other albums is that it feels like he's actively trying to engage the listener with some really creative and live sound play instead of lulling them into a stupor. And under a lot of this sound play, he's bringing actual songs, not just indulgent navel-gazing set to a couple of never-ending chord changes. I think if it were played at a faster tempo with more straightforward backing instrumentation, the track Token could be a, a song that appeals to a lot of fans outside the Animal Collective camp. And at its core, I think the title track of this thing has a driving, folky quality to it with really surreal lyrics. It almost reminds me of like a Neutral Milk Hotel track, with Panda Bear obviously coming to a much different aesthetic conclusion with the whooshing waves of distorted noise, the enveloping bass, the pitter-patter percussion, and the guitar just soaked in delay. Meanwhile, the track Inner Monologue also feels like a throwback, but to a time of folk music in the late 60s, early 70s, like just very lonely balladry with a lot of atmosphere and sad instrumental accompaniment, a strange sample of like a crying girl, some subtly droning layers, what sounds like a a sad, warped reed instrument playing out in the background, and some weirdly soulful vocal harmonies too. And that's another thing I should mention about this LP. A lot of Panda Bear singing, it's a little unlike what fans might be used to on previous records, whether it be solo material or Animal Collective stuff, because his voice, while it is soaked in delay, it's not really being covered or veiled in any walls or layers or anything. It's very naked, it's very straightforward, he does engage in some very weird, intentionally weird vocal inflections, uh, many of which sound kind of contorted 
and bad to the point where I do think it ruins some of these tracks slightly. However, there is part of me that does appreciate the weird vocal risks he's trying to take on this record, and there are tracks that uh, the sound play and the song quality is so good that whatever weirdo vocal stuff Panda Bear might be doing, it kind of shines past that. Or I just ended up embracing or enjoying the weird, quirky vocal qualities of a certain track. So by virtue of those vocals and some of the sonic experiments on this record, I don't think Bowie's is going to be for all Panda Bear and Animal Collective fans. This is very much going to be... Uh, a project that appeals to a very small group within that crowd. I could especially see moments like the closing track on here rubbing fans the wrong way with uh, multiple sounds in the mix being set on these different disorienting delays that don't quite sync up and as the instrumentation intensifies the mix only gets more dizzying. So there are some bits of this record that are challenging and there are honestly some low points as well. Tracks where you either have a boring tune or a stale progression. The song Master is one of the longest and most painfully redundant tracks on the entire record. I mean I'm glad overall Bowie sees Panda Bear drifting away a little bit from that headache-inducing repetition, but uh, there's still some moments here where he seems to continue embracing that. I also like many of the romantic and slice-of-life lyrics throughout this record. There are quite a few moments where Panda Bear is referencing uh, reconnecting and turning off your phone screen, essentially. Living more in the moment, I guess. Overall, I thought this was a very fun, trippy, little alternative folk psych record. With, sure, some glaring flaws, but also a lot of character and a lot of creativity. I'm feeling a decent to strong six on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new LCD sound system record, Electric Lady Sessions. This is the latest project from famed American Indietronic alternative dance and post-punk outfit LCD Sound System. And it's essentially a record of session recordings the band laid down over the course of several days at Electric Lady Studios in Manhattan while they were in the midst of a tour behind their last full-length album, American Dream. A record that, if you remember, was essentially their comeback album after a very long hiatus and what was essentially a promise the band was breaking up for good. And if you also remember, I was one of the few people that didn't really care for the record at all. Personally, I thought a lot of the performances off this thing were kind of underwhelming. The wit and fun and exuberance of LCD's music was really lacking on this one. And while it's far from the worst album I've ever heard, I do think it is LCD Sound System's worst album. So given that, I didn't exactly go into Electric Lady with the highest hopes because a great deal of the material on this project is from American Dream. Just as the London Session CD the band dropped in 2010 right after their This Is Happening record was chock full of material from around that era in the band's career. Electric Lady also features recordings of a few throwbacks from the band's discography and a handful of covers as well that range in terms of adherence to the original blueprint. The band's take on the Human League seconds on the opening track of this thing sounds like a dead ringer for the original outside of James Murphy's vocals and the slightly more distorted instrumentation. As far as the pacing and the tempo and the overall composition of LCD's version here, it's like a carbon copy. Meanwhile, their take on Sheik's I Want Your Love is a lot faster, more tense than the very sensual original. The band kind of throws out the laid-back and disco-inspired grooves of that cut and replaces it with uh, something a lot more wiry and energetic and kind of intentionally awkward and weird. And the band's take on We Don't Need This Fascist Groove Thing from Heaven 17 is maybe the best cover of the bunch just by virtue of LCD sound system sounding most 
in their element while playing it. Between the political lyrics and the cheeky group vocals, as well as the groove, it's like this track was made for LCD Sound System to cover it. And again, the rest of the material on this thing, it's just pretty much session renditions of tracks from American Dream. And I think your enjoyment of this project is going to be greatly predicated on your enjoyment of that album. Although I honestly can't say it bothered me all that much. Meaning that I prefer a lot of the session versions of these tracks to the originals, honestly. Because again, I thought the performances on American Dream were kind of boring and just really lacking in energy or oomph. The mix was consistently washed out and messy. Meanwhile, tracks like Call the Police on Electric Lady are presented in a much more raw and naked fashion. I, however, do not prefer the session versions of You Wanted to Hit and Get Innocuous on Electric Lady to the studio originals. There's not much, in my opinion, honestly, that can match the beauty and the color and the ecstasy of the production quality on Sound of Silver and This Is Happening. But still, I'll take the session versions of Tonight and Emotional Haircut any day over the recordings on American Dream. Now, given that these are live versions of these tracks, just putting these songs into a session and recording it does little to nothing about the subpar writing of the material on American Dream, as LCD Sound System pretty much just, you know, plays it pretty straight to the original versions of the tracks. So tracks from that album that took forever to develop and were really boring and utterly redundant like I used to, as well as Oh Baby, which has a really weird track listing placement on this record that utterly ruins the flow. Yeah, while I may enjoy the more organic and in-the-moment performances of these tracks to their studio version originals, uh, still, I, I do find the writing to be utterly boring. So, I don't know, I'm, I'm not really sure what else I can say about this record. I think it's pretty decent. Obviously, it's not a live version of American Dream all the way through. It's just got some material from it mixed with some covers and older stuff from the band's career. So while there is some material on this record I don't really care for, it feels a little unfair to purely judge this record based on its writing and the substance of the material because I already knew the quality of it going into it because I had heard the studio versions a while ago. But if what this record is supposed to do is make us recontextualize or listen to these songs in a different way because of the performance aspect of hearing the band play them out live in the studio, I would say it succeeds on that front to a decent degree. As a few of the band's older cuts and the covers are merely just okay, much of the American Dream material is greatly improved by these recordings. The performances are pretty tight. The grooves are pretty good. There are some points where I find the mix to be a little too crunchy or trebly, but when the band really does lay on the layers of chaotic instrumentation and, and reaches a point of chaotic climax, it does have a, a very satisfying sound. So overall, I do think this is a pretty solid session CD. Again, prefer it to American Dream. Wouldn't necessarily say I think it bests the London sessions, though. And it definitely leaves me looking forward to whatever LCD sound system is going to be doing in the future as even their least impressive material to date sounds greatly improved with a more muscular and defined recording and more lively performances. If they can manage to nail at least that on the next record, it's going to blow American Dream out of the water, no question. I'm feeling a strong 6 to a light 7 on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the brand new Shushu record, Girl with Basket of Fruit. This is the latest full-length album from California-based post-pop, post-punk, post-art, 
Noise Outfit Shushu. As always, masterminded by multi-instrumentalist and producer Jamie Stewart, Shushu also continues to boast the talents of Angela Sio, who co-produced this album along with Greg Saunier of Deerhoof fame. And in the past year, Shushu has also gained the talents of Thor Harris, who you might remember from many a Swans album. Also indie veteran Jordan Giger of Hospital Ships, as well as the Appleseed cast, mostly to fill out the, uh, the live set. There's also a pretty lengthy and impressive personnel list for this album that features a lot of extra vocalists, a lot of extra percussion, the latter of which has not really been a super big focus on many of Shushu's past records, but uh, the band's discography has been very creatively volatile as of late, from surprise collaborations to purely experimental detours that are released exclusively online. You have the Nina Simone covers album, you have the Twin Peaks covers album, the harrowing in blood-curdling Angel Guts Red Classroom, as well as the band's return to more of a pop form on their last full-length record, Forget. So there hasn't been a whole lot of predictability in this era of Shushu's discography right now, and yet the band continues to drop some of their most thrilling and exciting material yet. And Girl With Basket of Fruit is no exception. This record may just be nine songs and 37 minutes, but it is a powerfully twisted artistic statement that pulls absolutely no punches and is easily one of Shushu's most out-there albums yet. Shushu does their best to ward off the faint of heart on this album right from the start of the record with the title track, where all that percussion I was talking about earlier shows up in spades. It's one nasty, lo-fi, bustling beat layered on top of another battling for attention in the mix. It's messy, it's distorted, it's chaotic, it's absolutely overwhelming, and even Captain Beefheart-ish in some respects. Jamie Stewart, on top of all of this instrumental madness, delivers these shrieked and shouted bits of totally absurd poetry chocked full of insane quotables. She's in love with the angel of no taxi anywhere. Her boob gets so floppy she uses it as a fan to wave away his sickening B.O. Yeah, those are really real-life things that are said on this album. I'm not joking with you. It's just so profoundly twisted with the tinkering beats and the distortion and the ravings of an absolute madman. All the sour tones laced throughout the track as well. There's also a similar vibe on the track Scissors, which was an amazing teaser cut to this record. But while there may be many moments on this record that are just too weird for words, that's not to say that what's occurring here is just totally batshit or just random, as there are quite a few themes and lyrical ideas that are repeated throughout key points on the record, like something coming out as a joke, which may be a statement on the music the band is making on this album itself, as well as jerking it into mush, are ideas that are not only mentioned in the opening track, but also the following cut as well, but this time with a much more foreboding instrumental. Thunderous distorted beats, industrial atmosphere surrounding everything, lots of hellish noise slowly building before the band goes full tilt into all of these glitchy bits of demented melodies and skipping samples. And keep in mind, these are like experimental noise-spoken, shouted word pieces through and through. Any elements of rock music and pop music that fans might remember from Shushu's previous releases have completely melted away on this record. On Amarjive Mu, Jamie delivers more unhinged poetry over these groaning, bowed double bass notes. Eventually, his lyrics, his vocals devolve into literal babbling. <laughs> and it's an alright cut on the record, I suppose, as more low-key moments on this album goes. I do prefer the track Wrong Thing, where Jamie's 
more measured vocals and clear vocal melodies set against these very sad and droning and mournful synth chords are a breath of fresh air on this very relentless record. Kind of a very necessary bittersweet moment. The song Ice Cream Truck sees the sonic mayhem getting turned up once again on this record. All I have to say about this track is what a horrible way to treat sound. Not to act like I dislike this song, I, I do like it, in fact I love it, but the sounds on this track are so dusty and claustrophobic. I feel like I'm sitting in the middle of a meat locker, but instead of like hanging animal corpses, it's, it's strung up and hooked and decapitated sounds. It's just a pile of sound corpses and Jamie's poetry is essentially him just like jamming a flag into the pile. Hair dyed blonde for nobody. Nobody move. I also love the disturbing beats and samples on the track Pumpkin Attack on Mommy and Daddy, which features these weird, overwhelming, sometimes pitched, sometimes skipping vocal snippets throughout the track, wailing Halloween synths, a beat that sounds like someone's trying to make a club banger from hell. But easily the most disturbing song on the entire record has to go to Mary Turner, Mary Turner, which is honestly one of the most disturbing songs Shushi has ever put out in their entire discography, and if you know anything about Shushu, they have a pretty dark, despondent discography. Now, this track is quite literally about a woman in the early 1900s who was lynched for protesting the lynching of her husband. And given Jamie's complete lack of fear on this record when it comes to lyrics and when it comes to vocals so far, it should be no surprise that he takes it very far on this track as far as the subject matter goes. So far that anybody who has a soul by the end of this track should have their skin crawling, and anyone listening to this track who's never really reflected on the history of hatred in this country that led to barbaric practices like lynching might have to just sit down after this cut and have a very deep reflective think. As these are practices that are not that old, not that long forgotten, and the effects of which are very far reaching and cannot merely be forgotten in a few generations. The closing cut on this thing, Normal Love, is actually one of the prettier and more serene tracks on the album, but it's actually Still a kind of disturbing duet of sorts between Jamie Stewart and Eugene Robinson of Oxbow fame. There are some very gentle pianos on this track, some upright bass, Jamie and Eugene's vocals uh, twist and uh, sort of meld together in this beautifully horrifying way. I feel like I'm listening to poltergeists singing together because they're trapped forever on this earthly plane they don't want to be on, so they're trying to... Uh, sing their pain away. Man, this is a very potent and hard-hitting album. What a shocking, unique, ugly, and gorgeously dark record, and undoubtedly a high point in Shushu's discography so far. And really encouraging, too, to see a group of Shushu's age and of their talents still coming out with groundbreaking and cutting edge and exciting material. Good on Jamie and good on Angela for never giving up on pushing this project in a direction where it continues to give listeners a unique one-of-a-kind experience. I'm feeling a light too decent nine on this thing. And it is time for a track review of the brand new collaborative cut from Cardi B and Bruno Mars. If you guys remember, Cardi and Bruno crossed paths a while back on the super viral um, New Jack Swing throwback cut finesse, uh, the remix of it anyway, which uh, really kind of lit the track up. Music video is super fun. 
Uh, Cardi B brought a lot of character to the track that I don't think was there previously. And uh, now because of that success, because of that popularity, uh, because they just seem to work so well together, uh, they are teaming up once again. So please me, new single, Cardi B, Bruno Mars, glasses finally cleaned off and on my face. Uh, let's give it a shot. Let's give it a try and see what Cardi and Bruno are cooking up this time around. Ba-bam. <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> damn. That uh, was not as playful, innocent, and as fun-loving as uh, the finesse remix at all. Or rather, it was way raunchier. This is a blatant post-Valentine's Day sex jam. It is slow. It is sensual. Cardi's verses are absolutely raunchy and uh, over the top, uh, going as far as, you know, just like eating her out and so on and so forth, uh, which is totally cool, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, clear the kids out of the room before you play this one, okay, is, is basically my, my, my bit of advice, okay? Uh, this, is, uh, this is not is not a fun jam for the whole family. Um, Cardi's verses, for the most part, Sound pretty average for her. I feel like she's fallen into uh, a point artistically where she just kind of delivers what people expect from her. Maybe she's a bit raunchier than she normally is because this is a super, super, super sexual track. Uh, the instrumental is kind of a mix of smooth jam R&B and it's got a sputtering trap beat uh, that's pretty easygoing and chill. Uh, Bruno Mars all over the track doesn't really have a, a strong verse or anything like that. For the most part, he just kind of flies in on the choruses and delivers these incredible, like, climbs upward into his register. Please, please, man. Like, he's really getting up there, turning up the volume, turning up the intensity, turning up that sensuality. Uh, I wish him and Cardi traded off a little bit more or that he got, you know, sort of his own defined verse where he had something to say. But for the most part, he just kind of seems like... Uh, uh, you know, almost like just like a placeholder or something in the track, which um, is okay. I, I feel like Bruno Mars's singing on these choruses would fit more during like a really passionate bridge or something. You know what I mean? Because as a hook by itself, um, I don't think it's that great of a hook. The, these really passionate vocal uh, crescendos, I guess, you know, maybe you could even call them. Um, I, I don't think they work as well as just like a straight hook as, as it could just be like, you know, a really intense moment toward the end of the track to kind of polish things off and, and give the audience like a grand finale or something. Um, as a chorus in and of itself, I think it's kind of weak and you're, you're, uh, um, <laughs> prematurely given too much away too early in the song. I think you got to tease people a little bit with a more straightforward chorus, uh, before you totally, you know, Blow your load, as it were, with uh, uh, these insane uh, vocal runs that uh, Bruno Mars is pulling off repeatedly uh, throughout the track, each one feeling like a, uh, a little musical orgasm, I guess. But uh, uh, I guess we'll leave it at that. Uh, I think it's a fine track. You know, didn't blow me away, not as uh, interesting or as fun to me as the Finesse remix, um, but certainly not terrible. You know, nice, fun, easygoing, super sexy, sensual track. Uh, with, you know, a mild amount of chemistry between uh, Cardi and Bruno, I suppose. And, uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. 
and it is time for a quick thought piece video where I will be talking about uh, three reasons that I think the concept of this new Yesterday film, just based on the trailer alone, makes absolutely no sense. Uh, first, before I get too deep into it, I do want to mention that down there are some links to tour dates for the upcoming tour that I have, uh, West Coast Tour, this May. Hope to see you guys there. And uh, general admission and some VIP tickets are left via the link down below. Uh, again, hopefully see you guys there. Okay, so if you guys haven't noticed, the internet has been lit up a little bit for the past 24 hours because there's been a lot of discussion about this uh, new movie that has just been teased, uh, should be dropping later this year. It's titled Yesterday. It's also from the director of Slumdog Millionaire. And the whole concept and the idea of this movie is that this uh, singer-songwriter type dude basically falls off his bike, he hits his head, and he essentially wakes up in a world where nobody knows who the Beatles are. And historically, I guess they just didn't even really happen. He's Googling the Beatles and John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and nothing's coming up. And it's like, oh my God, what's going on? I'm the only person on the planet who knows who the Beatles are and knows all these songs. And so then he proceeds essentially to start playing these classic Beatles tracks and he's stunning people with them. And then before you know it, he's the greatest songwriter the world has ever known. And he's uh, very popular and he's in high demand because he's such a great songwriter and so on and so forth. And I mean, as cute as <laughs> the concept looks, and this is definitely, I think, um, uh, a bit of a power fantasy that a lot of people uh, who are huge music fans have probably had at some point in time. Like if if they could have woken up one day and have written all of David Bowie's songs and then been the been not the next David Bowie, but the David Bowie instead of David Bowie, then you know that that would be amazing. Um, but there are a few reasons why this whole idea just does not work at all. And uh, I'll, I'll sort of go through those right here. The first reason why the concept of this movie just doesn't make any sense to me is the influence of the Beatles music. Because if you were really going to create a world where the Beatles had no impact and they were not there and they never occurred, they were never a thing, the current landscape would be so massively different because of how popular the Beatles were, because of the huge cultural impact that they made. I mean, at one point in the trailer, uh, one of the singer-songwriter's friends uh, says, yeah, it's a good song, but you know, it's, it's no Coldplay, so on and so forth. Like, would Coldplay even be here? if not for the Beatles. I argue, no, Coldplay would not be here if not for the Beatles and a lot of other musicians as well. I mean, obviously music would still exist, but what we know now as popular music would be wildly different. And it feels like the movie, just based on the trailer, doesn't really account for that in any way, shape, or form outside of just everything's exactly the same, but nobody just knows who the Beatles are. I think you could certainly make a film where you try to theorize about what the world and the world of music would be like if the Beatles had never occurred. But it seems like this movie wants to essentially have its cake and eat it too by erasing the Beatles completely from historical musical existence, but 
also just have the world that we exist in be completely exactly the same, maybe making a stink over this issue to some music fans might seem a bit ridiculous. But imagine instead if you had a scenario in a movie where uh, all of a sudden the car was never invented and we had a protagonist that was given the ability to one day wake up and invent the car. But then imagine this world, this person wakes up and looking exactly the same as the world we know it now. There are even asphalt roads and traffic signs and lights going in every direction, yet nobody is driving an automobile or a bus over them. My next major issue with the premise of this movie is context. Not only are we living in a world where the Beatles never existed, and that doesn't make sense, as I've already established up until this point, if you're going to present us with a world that's pretty much exactly the same as the one we know today, but also... Could you feasibly take all of these fantastic and great Beatles songs from the 60s and from the 70s and erase them from memory and then fast forward time several decades later and then just present them to people in 2018, 2019, and then all of a sudden they would catch on just the same as they would if it were the 1960s? Honestly, I think the sensation of the Beatles, part of the reason it was a sensation that happened at the time that it did was because it happened at the time that it did. Especially if we're living in a world that without the Beatles is pretty much unchanged as this movie presents to us, a lot of the ideas and sounds and songs that are presented in this film are no longer cutting edge or no longer refreshing. I mean, to even get a bit of a foothold, our protagonist here would most likely need to be doing trap remixes of all these great Beatles songs. <laughs> it's long been said that if artists like John Lennon or Paul McCartney, were they getting started now? in the music industry, uh, the industry wouldn't sign them in a million years. And I actually stick pretty closely to that belief, not only because the sounds and the talents of a McCartney or a Lennon or a Harrison aren't exactly in demand right now in the industry, but also I just don't think that the Fab Four would make all that much sense in 2019 and current marketing trends in music too. And that is my third major issue with the premise of this movie, marketing, because I think there are a lot of naive music fans that might enjoy the cute premise of this film, but not really appreciate just how much marketing goes into promoting a particular artist or album or song, and that things in the music industry don't get popular simply by virtue of being good. Artists don't get tons of fans just by virtue of being talented, unfortunately. I wish it worked more that way, but it's it's not usually the case. And it's for that reason that I don't think you could merely just hand a bunch of random forgotten Beatles songs to some dude, just any dude, and then just have that person start playing them and all of a sudden they become the biggest music superstar the world has ever known. Not that talent can't shine through and not that cream can't rise to the top, but once you have good songs, it's not just a matter of playing them in front of people, and then all of a sudden you're the next biggest thing. There would still have to be a gigantic, multi-million dollar music marketing machine behind this person in order to get them onto a platform where their music, their songs, their talents are actually making some kind of impact. And I think I'm going to leave it at that. Those are essentially my three major issues with the premise of this new Yesterday film. But all that being said, I mean, the production of the movie looks fine. The Beatles renditions played throughout the trailer seem fine. The acting, for the most part, seems okay. I'm sure this movie at the end of the day will be sound technically and will be utterly cute. But uh, still, just as a, a music nerdy individual myself, I just had to kind of get out there my feelings on just how obnoxious I find this premise to be, and, and that's it. 
Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast here. I have been your host, Anthony Fantano. Shout out to Jonah for assembling another one of these episodes as well as he always does. Uh, make sure to hit us up on social media, twitter.com slash the needle drop, a Fantano on Instagram, the needle drop.com, youtube.com slash the needle drop and youtube.com slash Fantano to not miss a single piece of content that we drop week to week to week. I will catch you guys in the next episode. Make sure whatever platform you're on, you are subscribing, you're leaving a rating, you're leaving a very nice review or a comment or a thought and uh, la, 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 love you. Anthony Fantano, music, podcast, forever. Forever.